Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. We don't like to wait. And yet the waiting game is one of those games that life will forever be forcing on us. At a number of turns in your road, you will be asked to wait. And of all people, especially in light of the scripture that's given to us this morning, there is an overarching waiting that goes on in our life from this time to the time in which we encounter the person of Jesus Christ again. And it'll be a great time. The Bible speaks often on the subject of waiting. There are over 100 references to that issue, often in the context of waiting on God to move, uh, to act, to rescue, to deliver, to answer, to help, to reward. Those of you in community groups have been studying the spiritual disciplines for a number of months now, and I want you to know that the Scripture would clearly declare that waiting is a form of spiritual discipline. To wait on God is a discipline, and yet waiting is never easy. And those of us who have played the game know that waiting is loaded with a number of pitfalls and seductive snares along the way, and we'll look at some of those here in just a moment. You know, this uh, week, <clears throat> my wife called attention to this month's issue of Good Housekeeping. Uh, she called my attention to it, not because I particularly enjoy the magazine, I want you to know that, but uh, within this uh, particular magazine is an article that's featured in this month's uh, Good Housekeeping of a special friend of mine, uh, Peggy Morrison. And uh, in that article, it reads this way, as the article begins, there are a number of pictures of Peggy. Some of you uh, know Peggy. She has sat in our audience a number of times when she came from Tucson to Little Rock to visit um, her daughter and son-in-law, uh, Pat McClanahan and Cindy. Pat was on our staff uh, for a number of years as a youth pastor. But this article is a feature on her life and the subject of waiting. And it begins this way. Peggy Morrison was counting her blessings on that November Monday in 1968, just one month more until her husband Jay would return for good from Vietnam. When her doorbell rang, she called, I'll get it, you stay in bed. Jed, her 13-year-old son, was at home with the flu. Even with Jed sick, Peggy felt buoyant. After flying combat missions for nearly a year, her beloved Jay, Colonel Joseph C. Morrison, would be home for Christmas. Smiling to herself, she flung open the front door. Two Air Force officers with sober faces stood on the porch. With one glance, Peggy knew that Jay would not be home for Christmas after all. Welcome to the waiting game, Peggy. It was a waiting game that in this case was a continuous 24-year nonstop addition that ended only a few months ago when walking through a museum in Hanoi, some U.S. officials spotted Colonel Morrison's gun and his helmet. And later on, pictures came back to the Morrison house of an executed Jay Morrison. And the waiting game was over. For months after Jay Morrison was officially listed as an MIA, and it was a long wait, letters that he had previously written to her continued to fill 
Peggy's mailbox. And then one day the letters stopped, and the article reads this way. As Peggy sat numbly in their TV room one night, her son Jed padded in on bare feet and sprawled beside her, gawking in his adolescence. And he said, Mom, are we going to make it? Innocently, Jed had come to the very heart of what the waiting game is all about. We know it well as believers. Making it is what the waiting game is all about. Making it is what separates winners from losers in the waiting game. Making it is the prize of the waiting game, and making it is what Jesus Christ was exhorting His disciples when He talked to them about His leaving and coming again. This is the text in Luke chapter 12. So let's look again at verse 35. Let me read those, and then we'll begin to walk through this text verse by verse. Jesus says to them, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight, and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves when the master shall find on the alert when he comes. And truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table. Kind of a twist here that he would serve them and wait on them whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them. So blessed are those slaves. Now, I can't help but think as we look at this opening statement of Jesus, because he's talking to his disciples here, that they were in a way confused by his statement. And some of that confusion comes out when you get to verse 41, because uh, they're absorbed in the events of the present. And when he talks about that the Son of Man in verse 40 is going to come in an hour that you do not expect. Peter asked, and I would have asked, are you talking to us or to the multitudes? I mean, we're with you. Uh, you're not going to leave us, are you? And if we come back, won't we be coming back with you? And so who are you talking to here? There's some confusion on their part because of their absorption in this present moment. Of course, we looking back on this text from the glance of 2,000 years knowing the whole story, know that Jesus is preparing them. He is laying down some important rules for a spiritual version of the waiting game called the second coming. A second coming the disciples had yet to grasp, as I said, because they were so absorbed in the events of the moment. But in a few months, and by the way, we're only a few months away from His crucifixion, that awful hour, the waiting game for these men would start and everyone who would believe after them will also be included in the waiting game. Now notice in verse 36, the waiting game here is described as a wedding feast. At this time in history, most Jewish weddings, by the way, occurred at night. And the celebrations and the feasts that would uh, naturally follow a particular wedding always had an unpredictable element to them, just like weddings and the receptions that follow have an unpredictable element to them. These parties are no different than the ones you and I attend. And sometimes they can go on and on, even way into the night. That's the nature of parties, isn't it? Occasions. If you have teenagers who babysit, you know that those teenagers know all too well how unpredictable adults can be at times when they go off to an occasion like this, and they have to either call or they come late saying that they got, quote, tied up. 
At least my teenagers have felt that. In this story, the babysitters are slaves. That's who they are. And their job is to wait dutifully for their master to return. But the same uncertainty that sometimes plagues babysitters, you know, when they say, when are these people coming back? Plagues these slaves as the hours roll by. by. When, is, when is the master? When is he coming back? Look at verse 38. Uh, whether he comes in the second watch, the second watch on a Jewish clock was between 9, 8, 9 p.m. and midnight. Maybe he's going to come all the way to midnight. It says here, or maybe it's even the third. The third was from midnight to 3 a.m. Now that's some party going on there, isn't it? But blessed is the slave who comes and finds, a master who comes and finds his slaves ready is what we're saying here. But whether it's the second or the third, at this point, we discover the two opponents that are pitted in the waiting game. You know what those two opponents are? You might jot them down. They are duty versus uncertainty. Those are the two opponents that get matched up in your heart when you play the waiting game. Duty versus uncertainty. Can we make it? <laughs> Will we make it? Can we stay alert and ready until He comes? That's the picture that's being drawn here. I can remember several years ago when and this happened on more than one occasion, but not often, when Sherrod and I would return home from an evening out, and to our dismay, we would find the babysitter asleep on the couch. Has that ever happened to you? And uh, finding that, our toddlers were pillaging the refrigerator. <laughs> and they were absolutely sky high on Coca-Cola that they had had quarts of while the babysitter slept through a horror movie that my kids were watching and now were scared out of their wits. And I had to wake the babysitter and to add insult to injury, I had to pay her for that carnage. <laughs> you know how that feels. Well, this is where the waiting game changes in our story because, and, and really where the babysitter and slave analogy kind of separate. Because back in the first century, a master would not pay a sleeping slave. In reality, he would discipline him. He would beat him, might even disown him, because waiting on the master was serious stuff, and it had serious consequences to it. Notice it takes on an even more serious tone when you get to verse 39, because it's kind of like we switch stories suddenly, and we go from a wedding feast to one of a thief breaking in and looting one's house. The tone gets much more severe. And the point is, of course, that spiritual waiting is serious stuff. And if you don't wait well, you can lose a lot. That's the point. Look at verse 40. It says that Jesus Christ says that He is coming back. And He mentions again, as He does in many places in Scripture, that you won't know the hour, even though we still have foolish people always making those kind of predictions. But the point of the passage is not verse 30. That's included, but that's not the point of the passage. It's not on the certainty of His return. The whole flavor of the passage is on what we will do in the uncertainty of His absence. That's the whole point of the passage. What will you do in the uncertainty of His absence? It's like Jed asked his mom, will we make it? 
Hmm. It's a great application question for this text. Will you make it? So what are some things maybe we can start out with? There are some uh, blanks on your outline here. I want to tell you that there's some observations I have personally made as I looked over this text. Four things. First would be this about the waiting game. The waiting game, as I said, pits Christian duty against an ever-tempting uncertainty that will whisper in your heart very practically, day to day, every day, He's not coming back. It's, it's not worth it. Go ahead and live for yourself. Don't be a fool. Live now. If you don't get it now, <laughs> you won't get it. So go for it. That is the ever-tempting voice of uncertainty that comes head-on and clashes with the voice of the Spirit that cries out duty, service, love, obedience. That's part of the waiting game. Secondly, the waiting game requires me to submit my whole life to an event, a future event that I have no control over. And you know, that's hard. I want to be honest here. That's hard for me. To submit my whole life and the features of my whole life and the things that I would desire to do and the choices I would desire to make, to risk it all, to gamble it, if you will, on a future event I have no control over, made by a promise that was given to me 2,000 years before I lived. That's hard. That's why philosopher and economist David Hume once observed, Human beings are always inclined to prefer present interests to those distant and remote. It is not easy for them to resist any temptation that they may immediately enjoy. You know, Christian service and the Christian life, quite frankly, is heroic living. It's heroic living, living in the face of an ever-questioning uncertainty that haunts us and is around us all the time. Thirdly, I would observe that the waiting game demands faith and work. That's what I think is meant by readiness in verses 35 and then later at the end in verse 40. You know, he says, be ready. What does he mean by be, be ready? He means more than just faith. Faith and works is what he's addressing here. If you want to be ready. And then finally, the waiting game is full of pitfalls and prizes. There's reward in waiting well. There's also pitfalls in not waiting well. And that's what follows in verses 42 through 48. Now, Dorothy and Lloyd read those verses. And you might just look with me for just a moment over those verses very quickly. And I want you to see, do you see four slaves there? There are four. Four different slaves, four different players in the waiting game. The first guy we get is the all-pro. He's MVP, the most valuable player in the kingdom. And it's good that we get introduced to him first because he is our model. Look at verse 42. And the Lord said, as Peter says, who are you talking about? He says to them, the disciples, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations in the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Wouldn't it be wonderful for once to get caught doing right <laughs> rather than caught doing wrong? That's what he's talking about here. Being caught doing right. 
And he says, in so doing, truly I say to you that he will put this slave in charge of all his possessions. What we're introduced here is to the excellent slave. That's the first slave. The excellent slave. And I want you to underline maybe in your Bible four phrases that mark him out as an excellent slave. The first is in verse 42. It's the words faithful and sensible. He's got faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's not a ridiculous faith. It's a sensible faith that leads to sensible action in his everyday life. Faithful and sensible. Secondly, in verse 42, it says that he's been put in charge of the servants. And here's the words, to give, to give. One of the things that marks this slave out that's so different from our age is his focus is away from self. <laughs> and that is so refreshing to be around people whose focus is away, away from self. We are so full of it, aren't we? S-E-L-F. But this slave gives and it marks him out as an all pro. Thirdly, notice in verse 43, when the master comes, it finds this slave doing something. He's giving, but the feeling you get, and certainly this is the intent of the text, is that he didn't just give once. His whole lifestyle was marked as a characteristic, he was a giver and he did so and he kept doing so in light of the eternity that he would one day face and encounter. And when his master came, he was ready. That marks him out as being an all pro. And then in verse 44, it says he then puts in this next life, this slave in charge. That's the next phrase that marks him out. There's reward to faithfulness, to gambling your life away on a point in eternity that you have no control over, there's great reward in it. I wish we had time to look at all the scriptures here this morning of all the promises of reward for faithfulness because there's great reward in betting your life on Jesus Christ. Not just in this life, though there's great reward here too, but in the next as well. This is what marks this person out. And let me give you a pastoral observation you know, I've been here now 13 years. I've been a pastor about 20 years. I get to observe all kinds of people in ways that most of you will never get to see them. I get to see the inside of their life all the time, every day of every week. And one of the things that I've observed in just watching people is that those people who look like this individual here, who are sensible with their faith, it's very practical in their real life. They're not theoretical Christians. They are away from self in their lifestyle. They think of others. Others are as much on their mind, if not more so than themselves. They are consistent and they discipline themselves in that consistency. Those people, and I know them in our church and I could tell you about them, those people are healthier, happier, more fulfilled in their life than anybody else in this church. And it consistently stands that way. Because the Christian life has great reward in this life. But those very same people won't get less in the next life. They will get even more then too for their faithfulness because they are givers. And when the king comes, he is going to put in charge his kingdom to those who think away from self, not towards it. 
That's the teaching of this text. Then notice, there is a second slave. He is just the opposite, on the far end of the other spectrum than this all pro. He is what I call the indulgent slave. Look at verse 45. It says, but if that slave, let's say he's different now, says, notice where he says it, not outwardly. He likes to conform outwardly, but in his heart, he says, my master will be a long time in coming. The, the literal Greek says, my master is delayed. There's even a question mark of uncertainty whether he will come. That's this slave. And this indulgent slave then succumbs to the uncertainty of his master and his master's return. And once he does that in his heart, his life, notice, begins to deteriorate in all quarters. Notice what he does. He says, my master will be a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the slaves with no regard of gender, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. Now, here's what I want you to notice. This indulgent slave, don't miss this. He reflects on a personal level what is true of any culture that loses its eternal reference point. Once it has lost the light of eternity and the great shadow it cast over this life, life begins to deteriorate into a here and now selfish existence. And it is marked by, and let me look at the text now, and it's marked by violence. Notice, who does he beat? Men and women. Does that remind you of anything you read in your paper every day? There's violence. Secondly, there is indulgence. He eats and drinks. He lives for the now. And then there's addiction. He gets drunk. He becomes possessed. Are those not characteristics of the age in which we live? Violence, indulgence, addiction. Life deteriorates when you lose an eternal reference point. And this, what this person has lost. And he becomes a secularist, divorced, from any reference point of eternity. And in that divorce, there is great error and harm and hurt. You know, if someone were to ask me, Robert, would you, what do you believe is the greatest obstacle to Christian maturity in the church today? I would answer this way. The greatest single obstacle to spiritual maturity is an impoverished understanding, bordering on unbelief but an impoverished understanding of the accountability that we will give to Jesus Christ when He returns, which when lost, inspires selfishness and assaults faithfulness. That's the greatest obstacle I see in the Christian church. Great movements of God are always accompanied by a rich and powerful understanding and in fact, very clear vision of the day of accountability. Everyone in great moments of history lived in that bright light and looked forward to it, not fearful of it, because it inspired faithfulness and selflessness and sacrifice and obedience rather than indulgence and addiction and violence. That's what called them forward. You know, this week, um, my son Mason came up to me and uh, he showed me this little book. You can't see this, but this is a book right here. 
And he had taken this from the judge's desk in our home. We call it the judge's desk because it was my great-grandfather's desk who was a federal judge. And, and I don't know if he had this or it was purchased at an antique store or whatever. But I have never really looked at this book, but Mason wanted me to go through it with him. So I opened it up, and to my amazement, I discovered that this is a hymnal. And it is a hymnal 40 years from the Wesleyan revivals of 1790. Man, this is an interesting book. And I began to read through this book and found out in the collection of all this, these are the hymns that were written by John Wesley. And they are arranged around different subjects. And it's interesting because it gives you a glimpse into what people believed back in 1790 through 1830 when all that was going on and Methodism was running across the country and winning people to Christ, what they believed. And it's broken down into hymns of praise, um, these, even these terms will show you where they were. Hymns of backsliding. Hymns of full redemption. Hymns of family worship. Don't you kind of feel awkward with every one of those? Then interestingly enough, hymns describing heaven and songs of judgment. Now that's interesting if they were singing that in the Methodist church today, isn't it? Let me read you one of them. This is a hymn 577. And must I be to judgment brought and answer in that day for every vain and idle thought and every word I say? <laughs> yes, every secret of my heart shall shortly be made known and I receive my just deserts for all that I have done. How careful then ought I to live with what religious fear who such a strict account must give for my behavior here. Thou awful judge of quick and dead, the watchful power bestow, so shall I to my ways take heed to all I speak or do. If now thou standest at the door, oh, let me feel thee near and make my peace with God before I at his bar appear. Can you imagine singing that hymn here? But that truth that's being expressed in this hymn rings clear in our text and all through the sacred scripture. You know, there is a scary revelation about this indulgent slave. Look in verse 46, because the master does come. And when the master does come, we see him doing something that, gosh, is a little bit scary. He finds this indulgent slave and he cuts him into pieces and assigns him a place with the unbeliever. What we find at this master's coming is that this slave's life is not just deemed reckless and rebellious. It's judged worse. Unbelieving. I cannot help but think that that would have surprised this slave. He knew the master, he thought. But verse 46 assigns him with the place of the unbelievers. And when I read that, my spine shudders just a bit because I think there are many religious people who will suffer this same fate. They will so because their foolish, indulgent lives proved their unbelief, not their belief. Oh, they acknowledge God. They name the name of God, but they don't read texts like James that says, Faith without works is dead. 
And suddenly, in their own surprise, that they probably don't even comprehend now in this life, the deadness of their comfortable religion will be labeled unbelief at the bar. And the assignment is not into the kingdom, but to be banished from it. You know, Wesley put it this way. In Psalm 5:7, in hymn 579, he says, That awful day will surely come. The appointed hour makes haste when I must stand before my judge and pass the solemn test. Jesus, the source of all our joys, the ruler of our hearts. How could I bear to hear thy voice? Pronounce the sound. Depart. This indulgent slave suddenly found himself out of the master's house when he thought that foolish living would not affect his presence there. It's good to review our lives from time to time and to see in light of a coming kingdom where we stand in that light and whether there is true faith because if there's faith, there will be works because faith without works is dead. There are two other slaves, if you'll notice, in verses 47 and 48. Uh, the one in 47 is what I call the passive slave. It says, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. There's a, there's a punishment of sorts, but it's different from the indulgent slave. Notice this irresponsibility and the subsequent punishment of the slave is found not in the evil which he does but in the evil of what he did not do. Passivity. Listen to the searing words of the master when he returns to this slave back in Matthew 25 who was given a talent but did nothing with it other than the bury it. Which, by the way, is a picture of God confronting the passive believer. When the master returns, he says to him, you wicked, lazy slave. <laughs> Wickedness is accounted to laziness, what I would call passivity. In the waiting game, one of the greatest forms of evil for the Christian is just doing nothing. Not doing wrong, doing nothing. Not doing evil, just not doing anything. Being just a good person, focused on a good life, the American dream, doing nothing. That's passivity. You know, I'm 13 years in the ministry, as I've said, and what has made it 13 delightful years here at Fellowship Bible Church is I have the pleasure of seeing many people use their gifts. It's exciting. In fact, just in this last week, I came across a number of what I call Christian entrepreneurs here. People who they've started to discover who they are and what they are in Christ and the gifts they have and they are beginning to use those gifts, not because the church is asking them to, not because the church is demanding them to, but because they feel a personal accountability to their father. And I want you to know your father is thrilled with what you do. What a beautiful picture I saw just the other day at my son's basketball game. I was talking to a dad there, and that dad had told me that um, his son had told him that he felt like he was not very good on his team. So we were watching him play, and just about that moment, the ball bounced off the rim into this son's hands. And startled, he went up with the ball, and swish, the ball went through the net. And he turned with his eyes about that big, 
running down the court looking at his dad. And I poked his dad and I said, I bet he's flying at about 10,000 feet right now, don't you? And his dad turned to me and you could see the tears in his eyes. He said, I'm flying there too. And I want you to know every day of your life, when you step forward for the kingdom, you thrill your father who is in heaven. Thrill him to the point that he will never forget. And on the day you meet him face to face, will love recounting the stories to you of your obedience and faithfulness and your willingness to risk it all for a day that he said will come. That's what this text teaches to us. The thrill of God. Notice, lastly, there's the ignorant slave in verse 48. It says, but the one who did not know his master's will and went on and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive only a few lashes. That's interesting here. And we will mention this only for the sake of reminding ourselves of the fairness of God's justice to all people. His judgments are not based on comparing you to someone sitting next to you. You are somebody who's a missionary in professional ministry. God knows who you are and what you are. And the judgments that He will place on you are on what you have, not what you don't have. Who you are, not who you're not. What you've been given, not what you don't have. And on what you know, not on what you don't know. No one will be able to face Jesus Christ and listen to Him meet out his judgments for every believer, for every deed done in the body, whether good or bad. No one will be able to look at the judge, the righteous, loving, merciful judge, and say, that's not fair. Oh no, it will be fair, perfectly fair, absolutely just, based on what you do have and who you really are and what you've been given and the things that you know. It'll be fair. So given those truths, and given these four players, where does your heart tug at? You know, who would you like to be? Who would you like to model? How well are you playing the waiting game? Are you making it? Is duty winning out or uncertainty? Are you submitting your life to the future or gambling it away on temporal things? These are great questions. They're hard questions, I know. But you know, they are necessary questions. We don't always need to be patted on the back and told we're okay. Sometimes we need hard questions that lead to some hard conclusions that previous preachers and Christians call convictions that then went on and led to a rich life. Not only here, but there. And there is coming, by the way. And you're closer to it today than you were yesterday. And you'll be closer to it tomorrow than you are today. There is coming. Finally, Jesus adds two final thoughts to those of who are waiting. One concerns division that we'll experience if we wait well. The other, discernment for the age in which we live. Look at verse 49. Jesus says this, and he kind of, as G. Campbell Morgan says, you kind of have an outburst of heart here by Jesus as he's thinking about all these things. And suddenly he says, and you can almost feel the passion in his voice, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's accomplished, certainly with a view to his crucifixion. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? 
I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three to two and two to three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Division. In my office, underneath the glass on my desk, I have John 16, 33, and it reads this way, In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. I love those words. They're an encouragement to me when you do battle day in and day out. To follow Jesus Christ is to embrace a worldview, a way of looking at things that will inevitably cause you to clash against those who hold an opposite worldview. And that clash will extend at times even down to the most intimate of settings that Jesus alludes to here. And that is your very families. I had it in my family. Did you have it in yours? When I became a Christian, it was three to two in favor of the non-Christians. It ended four to one in favor of the Christians. But it was a war at times, and there were clashes. And these things, Jesus says in verse 51, are God-ordained. He came to bring division. You know, probably at no other time in American history has the intensity of this clash, at least for our country, spilled over into the public sphere, and we see it every day in our papers. The Christian worldview and the secularist worldview openly clashing in moral debates up and down the American landscape, up and down Capitol Avenue at 2 o'clock. You will feel some of the clash of two worldviews as some march for life and some stand for their own rights. Those are worldviews clashing with roots that go deep. And no one puts that better than James Dobson in a book that he wrote called Children at Risk. I want to read a portion of that to you because I think he puts it so well that this life in the 90s for the Christian is not for wimps and certainly not for the faint-hearted who don't like confrontation. Jesus came with a sword. Listen to what he says. Nothing short of a great civil war of values rages today throughout North America. Two sides with vastly differing and incompatible worldviews are locked in a bitter conflict that permeates every level of society. Bloody battles are being fought on a thousand fronts, both inside and outside of government. If you open any newspaper, you'll find accounts of the latest Gettysburg, Waterloo, Normandy, or Stalingrad. Instead of fighting for territory or military conquest, however, the struggle now is for the hearts and minds of the American people. It's a war over ideas. And someday soon, I believe a winner will emerge and the loser will fade from memory. For now, the outcome is still in doubt. On one side of this continental divide are the traditionalists whose values begin with a basic assumption, God is. From that understanding comes a far-reaching system of thought that touches every dimension of life. The adherents believe in lifelong marriages, in the value of bearing and raising children, in the traditional family, meaning individuals related by marriage, birth, or adoption, in the universal worth of an individual regardless of productivity or other contributions to mankind, and in a complex series of immutable truths, including premarital chastity, fidelity, 
loyalty between spouses, the value of self-discipline and hard work, and more. Until approximately 30 years ago, these biblically-based concepts were the dominant values and beliefs in Western society. Then slowly, at first, another way of looking at the world began to emerge. It evolved from the basic assumption that God isn't. Everything emanating from the Creator was jettisoned, including references to spiritual, to spiritual truths or reverence for Scripture or any of the transcendent universal truths. Right was determined by what seemed right at a particular time. All the old rules and commandments had to be reconsidered. Since in their view, human beings have no eternal significance, the value of life began to be cheapened. Our species became just another member of the animal kingdom, perhaps brighter than the rest, but of no more value. Secular humanists easily embraced abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, euthanasia when, eat, when convenience demanded. Historic perspectives on morality and ethics gave way to a new morality based on changing social attitudes. Prohibitions dissolved, rules changed, restrictions faded, and guilt subsided. Obviously, this moral freefall was very liberating in the early days as self-discipline and restraint yielded to a less demanding master and it caught on like wildfire. It has been said that never in human history has a culture discarded its belief system more quickly than America did in the 60s. And so it seemed at the time. The humanistic system of values has now become the predominant way of thinking in most of the power centers of America. It has outstripped Judeo-Christian precepts in the universities, news media, entertainment industry, judiciary, federal bureaucracy, business, medicine, law, psychology, sociology, arts, in many public schools, and to be sure in the halls of Congress. Indeed, the resources available to secular humanists throughout society are almost unlimited in scope, and they are breaking new ground almost every day. Where then are the strongholds of the Judeo-Christian ethic? Only two remain, and they both face unrelenting pressure from the left. The first is the Christian church, which has been on the defensive in recent years and lost its taste for battle. Thus, the churches have pulled within their own fortresses to avoid becoming political and therefore vulnerable to ridicule. Meanwhile, 25 million unborn babies have died. Obscenity abounds everywhere. Our values and symbols are mocked incessantly on television. Where all of this is going, many of us in the church go about our business and pretend not to notice. The great army of believers could still turn the tide of battle if it awakens in time, but thus far only a courageous minority have been willing to defend the beloved homeland with their life. The second repository of Judeo-Christian values is the institution of the family. Beleaguered, exhausted, oppressed, the overtaxed family now stands unprotected against a mighty foe. If it collapses and if the church fails to mobilize, the civil war will soon be over. These are not easy times, and these are not easy days. And some of us would like to turn our head and walk away. That's why we need discernment. If you'll notice in verse 54, Jesus cries out for discernment. He says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and it turns out that way. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. And then he cries out, now to the multitudes, not to the disciples, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not analyze this present time? With John the Baptist, with Jesus, with the miracles, with an impotent religion 
compromised at every point. Can't you see that you are in a moral and spiritual storm? That's what he's asking those people. And do you think that it will go on like this, that days will just go on like they've always been? And I'm sure there were people out there, dead in spirit, dead in heart, dead in attitude who thinks, well, it'll just keep going on. We'll make it. And you know what? Forty years later, there was no Israel. I want you to know, unless things change, we are in a dying culture. And you can't turn your head. You can't pretend it's going to go away. You can't think, oh, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to cause any waves. I don't want to seem political. Today is your day to see this world in light of the next. And if you see it correctly, it will pull you to involvement, pull you to responsibility, pull you to service, because you are being pulled to a day in which you will stand before Almighty God. You know, there are some of us, and I know a number of us, because Dobson mentioned it as so, who would love to go back, who in fact long to go back to yesterday. Boy, if we could just have the America of the 50s or the 40s or the 20s, it's a longing for yesterday. But I want you to know that those who play the waiting game well have no time for looking back or for nostalgia because those who play the waiting game well are too busy engaging the present and looking forward to that day when the waiting will be over. Max Lucado says it this way. He says, I'll be home soon. My plane is nearing San Antonio and I can feel the nose of the jet dipping downward. I can see the flight attendants getting ready. My wife is somewhere in the parking lot, parking the car and hustling the girls towards the terminal. I'll be home soon. The plane will land. I'll walk down the ramp and hear my name and see their faces. I'll be home soon. You know what? You'll be home soon too. You may not have noticed it, but you are closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken. Each breath is a page turned. Each day is a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been before. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp. You'll enter the celestial city. You'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. Let's pray. And with your heads bowed, you might ask yourself this question. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to Him? Wouldn't today be a great day to do that? Boy, it'd be a great day to find His life rather than continuing to live in ambiguity and the emptiness that the world has offered you. Today would be a good day to give your life to Christ. And for a number of us who know Jesus Christ, wouldn't today be a good day to focus on the day of eternity and make some, make some good decisions in light of it? 
For some of us, Jesus Christ will come this year. For some of us, Jesus Christ will be at your doorstep in five years, ten years. And when you stand before Him, wouldn't it be wonderful to be found out doing it well? You have to make that decision. And you have to make that commitment. You have to put away lesser things. But you can only do it in your heart. No one can do it for you. Lord, I pray that today you might find faith here in this auditorium among these men and women reaching up not only just to believe you and say, Lord, I want to know Jesus Christ, but Lord, I want to live for Jesus Christ well. Help me. Lord, may you rejoice and be thrilled with the faith you see here today. A faith that's an anchored in a coming day that we have no control over, but that is a reality because you've promised. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.